Hi, and welcome to Women in Archaeology podcast, a podcast about, for, and by women in the fields. On today's episode, we are joined by Dr. Kimberly Plum, who is a bioarchaeologist, and she's going to be talking with us about some of the work that she has done during her PhD, as well as some of her more recent projects with postdocs, and I believe an upcoming edited volume. Also on this episode is Emily, one of our standard hosts, uh, and I'm Chelsea Slotten, I forgot to say that. <laughs> um, but Kim, before we jump into specifics, do you just want to give us a quick rundown of who you are and what you do? Sure. Um, so I'm Canadian. I did my bachelor's in anthropology and archaeology at the University of Alberta, and then I moved to the UK to do my master's in human osteology and paleopathology at the University of Bradford, and then I went to Durham University where I did my PhD in archaeology and anthropology. And my PhD focused on using methods called geometric morphometrics, which are a suite of um, shape analysis techniques. So they statistically test the differences and shape variation of objects. So in my case, I look at bones. Mm -hmm. Very cool. And you graduated... In was it 2014? Um, I graduated in 2013. 2013? Okay, sorry. Long time ago now. No, not so much. And where are you at these days? Now I'm at the University of Liverpool. So I did my first postdoc position at Simon Fraser University in Burnaby, Canada, which is right by Vancouver. And then I'm doing a second postdoc at the University of Liverpool. And I know Schroll's nodes, um, which is their dissertation topic, is kind of your baby. Yes. Um, and you definitely want to talk about that. And I want to hear more about that. And, and I will definitely need a rundown on what on earth that even is. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I know flakes. What's a whatever node? Yeah, so, I mean, what is a Schmorl's node? How did you get interested in Schmorl's nodes? Um, well, a Schmoll's node is a depression that you can see on the surface of a vertebrae. So we can see it in archaeological skeletons is why I studied it. And it's actually caused by a herniation of the disc that's between your vertebrae. So you know how the vertebrae are stacked on top of each other and in between is a soft tissue disc. Inside that disc is this jelly-like substance called the nucleus pulposus. When you get a herniated disc, the gel-like substance inside, the nucleus pulposus, herniates outside of the disc and it can go uh, horizontally or vertically. So horizontally can go directly into your spinal canal and that causes the really sharp pain uh, disc herniations that you've probably known people who have had that. Mm -hmm. Or it can go vertically and it can go directly into the vertebral body and bone will react to pressures like that. So the vertebral body will eat away a little portion of it to make room for this herniated tissue or fluid that's gone into the bone and it leaves a depression that we can then see in archaeological human remains later okay so this is something that we could still potentially see in modern skeletons as well then yeah we can you can see it on radiographs um anything like that you can see it you can see the um the pulposus actually herniating into the body Okay. And a radiograph is an x-ray. Yes. What would cause something like that to create the node itself? Because that sounds incredibly painful. So the cause um, is 
not really well understood. A lot of back problems in humans, the the cause or the etiology isn't well understood. Um, <clears throat> back pain is actually one of the most common medical problems today, and it is one of the main reasons for disability worldwide. I think it's the second most common reason for missing work than as opposed or secondary to the common cold mm -hmm. and it costs mm -hmm. um the uk canada us um, most countries it costs an exorbitant amount of money in medical care and loss of work and economic costs but we actually don't understand what causes a lot of problems and even if we do know that trauma or certain movements or aging causes certain problems or leads to certain problems we don't know why some people are affected and some people aren't so one individual might be the same age and do the same work as another and both will have very different effects on their spine and this is what led me to looking into the spine especially with Schmoll's notes is I was thought that perhaps <clears throat> bipedalism which is walking on two legs is a um, is the form of locomotion that we have Evolutionarily speaking, we developed bipedalism very quickly. And for mm -hmm. decades, people have said the reason why humans have so much back problems, because we actually have way more back problems than any other animal, including uh, our closest relatives, chimpanzees, gorillas, bonobos. Um, so we have way more back problems than them. And a lot of people have said it's because of the pressures and the stresses that we put on our spine walking bipedally. So because we stand upright, all of our body weight goes onto our spine, especially our lower spine, and this might cause us to have uh, more back problems. So it's all been downhill from there. <laughs> yes. So what I did Darn was evolution. I took, yeah, <laughs> I took my shape analyses mm -hmm. and I looked at the shape of vertebrae because I thought if there's something that's going to be a difference between me getting a back problem and you getting a back problem, and if it's related to bipedalism then the shape of the vertebrae themselves might actually have something to do with it. Individual variation in terms of what the shape of my vertebrae are versus what the shape of your vertebrae are. And I found there was a really strong correlation between people, the shape of people's vertebrae and whether they seem to have this Schmoll's node or not. Okay. So huh. for our listeners, can you give a kind of an idea of what like normal variation in vertebral like shape and, and size is? So normal variation would be quite small. Um, in terms of size, you know, um, a small female will have a smaller vertebra than a larger male. But in terms of shape, there's going to be very little variation that you can pick up with your eye. Uh, there might be some, but it's not going to be something that is very obvious. Mm -hmm. um, but my methods pick up shape that we can't capture with our eyes. So it picks up very subtle uh, patterns in shape variation and differences and similarities. And are these nodes typically visible by the eye or do they need to require like these um, more intensive scans? So the nodes are visible, but I was looking at the okay. shape of the vertebra. The shape themselves. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And so which populations were you looking at? Um, like a, uh, uh, what time in, in history? Um, what, where were they located? What kind of populations were you looking at when focusing on these, uh, on this issue? So my PhD, because I was set in England, I looked at medieval English populations. Mm -hmm. oh. um, and for my postdoctoral work, I've included populations from um, a bunch of different collections, including the Ham and Todd collection in Cleveland, which is um, a documented skeletal collection of Americans um, from, I believe, the uh, early 20th century. 
And I've looked at, I've included Iron Age individuals, um, people from China, from Egypt, from Nubia, from uh, Austria, Denmark, so, and Greenland. So my hypothesis that it's leading, has something to do with bipedalism, means that it doesn't necessarily matter what time period I'm looking at, because I want to see mm -hmm. human variation as a whole. Mm -hmm. And what I did after I found this correlation between vertebral shape and um, the disc herniation is I actually took the same methods and I looked at, I compared humans with the Schmoll's nodes, humans without the Schmoll's nodes, and I okay. compared them to the vertebrae of chimpanzees and orangutan. Mm -hmm. Do chimpanzees and orangutan get Schmoll's nodes? <laughs> they can, but they don't very okay. often. Okay. So whereas we would get Schmoll's nodes, say, up to... 75% of individuals can have Schmoll's mm -hmm. nodes. Prevalence rates change from anywhere from about 10 to 75%. Uh, Nancy Lavelle did a project and she looked at uh, Schmoll's nodes in ape skeletons and found, I believe, if I'm top of my head, about 2.5% in chimpanzees. Okay, so like much lower <clears throat> prevalence rates. Yes. Yeah. And what I found when I compared the vertebrae of chimpanzees and orangutans to humans with and without Schmoll's nodes is that the humans with the Schmoll's nodes actually had vertebrae that were statistically indistinguishable. That means that my methods couldn't find a big enough difference between them to say that there's a statistical difference mm -hmm. between them. Then they were actually statistically, sorry, I'm not saying it very well, but statistically in, indistinguishable from the vertebrae of chimpanzees. But they were distinguishable from humans without Schmoll's nodes. Huh. So the shape variation between chimpanzees and human uh, vertebrae is very small, but what that relationship tells us mm -hmm. is that the humans that have Schmoll's nodes seem to have more similarities in shape with the chimpanzees' vertebrae than healthy humans do. And my colleagues and I uh, hypothesized, we call it the ancestral mm -hmm. shape hypothesis, and we hypothesized that the individuals that have the vertebrae that look more similar to chimpanzee vertebrae actually have a more ancestral shape. So within within normal human variation, there's going to be individuals that are closer in, in shape with our ancestors. So our last common ancestor with chimpanzee. It has nothing to do with evolution. doesn't mean that someone is more evolved or less evolved. It's just human variation. And within that, there's going to be some individuals who look more similar to last common ancestor. And perhaps at that shape that is more ancestral was less well adapted to withstand the pressures place on the spine during bipedalism and it might predispose individuals to having right. this condition. That's really interesting. That is fascinating. And I, I just out of curiosity, when you're looking at like medieval populations or those that would have um, more stressors in terms of like backbreaking work, would you still see the same correlation or does one exasperate this situation more than another? Or is it really, it's just the shape of the vertebra that causes these things, not necessarily um, uh, the work being done. So unfortunately, I, I don't have the information with the populations we looked at at exactly what kind of work they were doing. The only thing that I can say is that mm -hmm. there doesn't seem to be um, a difference between people that I can see from Iron Age up until uh, the 20th century in terms of vertebral shape. So we're, we can't pick out, you know, these are um, Iron Age individuals and these are 20th century individuals. There's no population variation in that sense. And also, there hasn't been an increase or a decrease in the amount of these lesions through time. So mm -hmm. people have these lesions now, and people had them back then. 
So it doesn't mm-hmm. seem to be something that's str- that's strictly limited to certain lifestyles. Because as we've changed lifestyles, we're still okay. being affected by them. So I'm going to throw them. a curveball at you because I uh, don't know if you will have read any articles on this, but maybe. And I recently came across uh, some teaching a human origins course this semester, and I was looking at bipedal adaptations among various different primates for preparing course materials. And in doing that, I came across a paper from scientific chiropractor, I believe, that's talking about something that's being termed millennial spine. Uh, (laughs) I don't know if you've heard of it, but Mm. it's basically uh, doctors and chiropractors are seeing more and more individuals with herniated discs and severe back pain at a much younger age than previously. And the, the thought behind why we're seeing more of that now is people spend so much time you know, staying at their desks, staring at a computer, staring at a cell phone, and that kind of head forward position is not uh, like morphologically correct or not morphologically, um, but like it it puts strain on parts of our spine that are not designed to have strain put on them on a regular basis. Yeah, um, definitely. I mean, I have back problems, and they're exasperated when I am hunched over a computer all day. Okay, so do you think there's a chance that we might? start to more schmaltz norms radiographically um that i can't say a lot of back pain is actually um idiopathic meaning that they don't really know what causes it so a lot of individuals will have spinal lesions so those are the you know the issues Mm -hmm. that you can actually see on a radiograph in the spine but they don't have any back pain and then other individuals will have debilitating back pain and when doctors look there is no evidence for any kind of problem in their bones or their soft tissue. So it can be quite hard to uh, piece together the relationship between pain and what we're seeing in a clinical setting. Okay, that's interesting. Also, pain, there's a lot to do with, in terms of perception of pain, has a lot to do with society, individualism, how someone um, experiences the pain themselves and whether... uh, it's appropriate to complain about the complaint or not to. So it could be a difference in those things as well as a difference in um, posture and sitting and how we use sure. our spines. Well, I know that there's kind of an ongoing debate within the bioarchaeology of care, bioarchaeology of disability about how much modern scholars can assume a particular um, either disease or um, bony tubercle or you know just something that you're seeing in the skeleton how much we can assume that impacted the the life so kind of what i'm getting from this is that we can say that schmarls nodes existed and that there are herniated discs but it's we basically can't make any assumptions about whether or not that would have impacted the life of the individual okay exactly okay so it doesn't necessarily ensure that that individual would have been in pain it, no it doesn't like you could have the nodes without being exactly in pain. yep Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. That is fascinating. And so it's hard to kind of make that leap if you have all these folks with nodes like, oh, you have a entire township that would have been complaining about their backs. No, exactly. So I think personally, all we can do is look at the clinical literature, find out um, the correlation between perceived pain and or reported pain and presence of certain lesions. And then when we look in the archaeological record, and we look at a population and we find the um, 
prevalence rate of the same lesions, then we can say, okay, well, maybe 40% of them probably experience back pain at some point. But we wouldn't necessarily be able to point to who. Okay. That's interesting. And with the, the nodes, do you usually see other issues with the spine as well? Like it, um, it like more compounds with that? Or is it just, it's really a case by case? It's really case by case. Um, there's a lot of problems with the spine that relate to aging, such as um, osteoarthritis. Mm-hmm. But Smurl's nodes actually affect, seem to affect younger adults more often. So it also depends on when the individual dies. If they if they died as a young adult, they may have Schmoll's nodes and no no osteoarthritis. But if they had lived longer, then they might have developed osteoarthritis as well. Yeah. <laughs> There's that sad side of it, like with the pot. It's like, oh, if only we had a bigger, you know, population of certain aged individuals. It's like, oh, wait, no, that means that people would have had to die younger. That's sad. Yes, exactly. But... <laughs> well, that's one thing that I found interesting um, with, my project with the evolution of bipedalism and back pain. I'm hoping to expand it to look at beyond just Schmoll's nodes. I'd like to look at it in a clinical setting with um, disc herniations that we know that cause pain, as well as other lesions mm-hmm. in the spine. And what interests me is that, evolutionarily speaking, back pain is not going to be something that necessarily affects your fitness. Fitness being the mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. your reproductiveness. So. Something like catching tuberculosis when you're young and dying before you had a chance to have kids, is that affects your fitness. But having mm-hmm. back problems, if you keep going and keep feeding yourself and your family and keep reproducing, it's not necessarily going to affect your fitness. So it's not necessarily something that's going to be a disadvantage to right. us in terms of evolution. That is very interesting. And it's also making me think of, um, there's a his famous among bioarchaeologists, an off-quoted we can't actually call it famous paper on the osteological paradox. And when we were talking a little bit about the fact that this tends to affect younger individuals, it made me think, you know, about what else might be seen on their their skeletons. Because oftentimes when we see older skeletons but they're very ill, people want to say, oh, or they have a lot of evidence of having immune disease or a hard life. People want to say, oh, well, these individuals must have been really ill really sickly but the fact that they have survived long enough to have these uh, the evidence on their bones actually suggests that they were relatively healthy and they lived with the condition for a long time yes exactly um right and i'm i'm now looking at the clock and realizing that we're pretty much at the end of our first segment but if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about that at the beginning of our next segment that would be great okay perfect during the break why not check out the women in archaeology patreon account And there you can learn how to support the Women in Archaeology podcast and blog, and check out some of the blog posts we've been posting on our blog. You can see the different ways to become a patron of the Women in Archaeology, from $2 to $5 to $10, or even just showing your support and interest is always great. Thank you very much for listening, and hope you enjoy the rest of the episode. Hi, and welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. On today's episode, we have been talking with Dr. Kimberly Plump about some of her work with Schmarl's nodes, which relate to herniated discs. And at the end of the last segment, we were getting into the osteological paradox a little bit. So, Kim, if you want to just touch on how your work relates to that. Sure. So... 
when I'm looking at archaeological human skeletons, there might be younger individuals who have spines that don't show very many problems whatsoever. And there's going to be older individuals whose spines are just a mess. They're going to have tons of osteoarthritis. They're going to have mm -hmm. disc herniations. It's just going to look very painful. Mm -hmm. And so initially what you're your interpretation wants to be is that the older individual is less healthy because they have so many problems. But in reality, they survived that age to develop all those problems where the younger individual died young. And so they were probably the unhealthy one, mm -hmm. depending on how they died. It's like the reverse of what you would expect in the archaeological record. Exactly. So for example, um, the plague we don't see evidence of the plague on skeletons because it killed people too quickly. Mm -hmm. But diseases like tuberculosis or leprosy that you can survive for a long time, we see evidence on the skeleton for that. So you might find a plague pit and everybody in there looks perfectly young and healthy. And then in another cemetery, you find individuals that are quite old and show really horrendous um, problems all on their skeleton that indicate tuberculosis or syphilis or something like that and mm -hmm. in reality that person survived that long even with those conditions so even though the bug um the bacterium was ravishing their body and probably made life miserable they survived it for that many years that it actually left um evidence that we can see on the bone well if anyone is interested in learning more about and some of the plague stuff that Kim just mentioned, Sharon DeWitt has done some really interesting research on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, for future reading. That's a really good summary, Kim, of the osteological paradox. I appreciate that. I was just curious. So when we're looking at those um, impacts on the skeleton, um, just out of curiosity, and I'm, I apologize if this is out of your purview, I'm just curious how would then archaeologists know that they have a plague pit if it's not leaving any impact on the human remains themselves? Is it usually just like inference in the time frame? Like, well, it's probably the plague because there's this many people and during this time frame. Yeah, exactly. So it, okay. it would have more to do with the strangeness of the burial. So um, group burials like that would be abnormal in medieval Europe where mm -hmm. Christianity um <clears throat> dictates that people have single burials in a certain alignment with headstones and churchyard. So to have mass graves dating to um, the 13th century or so, <clears throat> or 14th century, indicates that it was likely going to be the plague because they had so many dead bodies at one time that they, they needed to just bury them. They couldn't mm -hmm. give them the proper Christian burials that they would have wanted to at the time if, if people were dying at a more normal rate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There are also occasionally um, historical records that will mention that there were plagues in certain places at certain time periods, and you can use the historical records to kind of triangulate some of what you're looking at. Not always the case, but it's nice when it happens. There might be times also where you know a certain battle or war took place, and you might find um, a mass burial there, but they're going to likely have trauma on the skeletons that you can relate to warfare and it's going to be where the historical battle took place and you put those together. Are there historical records that note back pain? I believe so. I haven't looked into that very much. It's a good idea though. 
Um, but my instincts would say that back pain probably, although would have been annoying on a day-to-day basis when you're living with mm. other problems in the world that they would have had at that time, it probably wasn't a huge... Plague warfare. <laughs> yeah. But there are, there are um, you know, in some literature and in some paintings and whatnot, there are indications that they did suffer from back pain. Mm-hmm. So I know you mentioned earlier, Kim, that you occasionally have some back pain. I don't know if that influenced your interest in Charles Nodes or Emily was asking in the break about kind of how you got interested in bioarchaeology specifically. Um, well, I've always weirdly been into dead things. Uh, um, when I was younger, because I wanted... dead things are really cool. Exactly. Yeah. From the other bioarchaeologists. <laughs> from as long as I can remember, I wanted to be a paleontologist. And my plan was to be a paleontologist and then do archaeology as a hobby, because at that time I thought that that was a possibility. Mm. And when I went into U of A for my undergrad, I took some paleontology courses and they were interesting, but my biological anthropology and bioarchaeology courses were just absolutely fascinating. And the idea that you can look at human skeletal remains and be able to give provide so much information about what life was like in the past uh that really just fascinated me that's really cool and just um i one of my students actually asked me this this week and um i think it'd be a a good thing to explain to listeners as well like what's the major difference between bioarchaeology and forensic anthropology since both deal with dead people essentially so the main differences are the questions involved and the time period so mm-hmm. forensic anthropology would deal with um, cases that are about, some people say it has to be old, younger than 50 years since death. Some people say 100 years since death. So it depends on who you're asking. But the idea is that if someone has died and you find their body, if that was to be done in suspicious circumstances, anybody that would have emotional attachments to the body, so um, a close family member or friends, would are no longer alive and also if there if it was a murder the murderer is probably no longer alive if it's been that long then it would be classified as archaeology if there's a chance that you know if if someone died when they were 20 and it was a chance that the murderer was also 20 and so they could be alive still then that's forensics because the question you know the, the answer to the questions that you'd be looking into of who are they sex age identification how did they die? All of that would be relevant to people living today on an emotional level, on a personal emotional level. Whereas once all of that is gone and nobody really remembers that person and nobody can be taken to trial or, or punished for the crime, then it starts to become archaeological. That's a great explanation. And I think it can be said for probably all three of us. It's like, we don't like just dead people stuff or just dead people. We like particularly old yes. dead people <laughs> yes, stuff exactly. and dead people. I don't know if that makes us sound stranger or more eccentric or not, but it's like, no, not current dead people, old dead old people. Dead people. Yes. <laughs> exactly. So the skills are actually the same in terms of mm-hmm. aging, sex scene, um, looking at pathologies, so disease or injury on the body, looking at um, cause of death. Uh, the only difference is that in archaeology, you're, you're not necessarily trying to identify the individual unless it's cases like with the Richard III that was in the news a couple of years ago where they actually wanted mm-hmm. to be able to identify the individual. Whereas forensics, the main lead is to identify who the person was and find out how they died. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the skills are the same, but you're you're um, putting them on to different answer different questions. That's awesome. And I, get, I apologize for... Uh, 
a topic shift, but this just made me think about like, since there are so many topics in bioarchaeology, if you had to study something else other than the, the nodes, what do you think would be your, your next uh, topic of interest? Or if you, even just for fun, what would you be interested in studying next? Well, actually, I'm working on a different project now. So um, my first postdoc was on the evolution of the spine and how that influences back pain. And mm-hmm. right now I'm actually working, I have a Marie Curie fellowship uh, at oh, the University of Liverpool. Thanks. It's almost done, though. <laughs> and what I'm looking at is Go I'm on. using my same methods and I'm looking at the shape of human crania and face to try and um, map migrations of people in northern europe in the early medieval period and viking age so i want to see i want to look at individuals in iceland and Mm -hmm. to see compare them to individuals from the same time period of those from the british isles and from scandinavia to identify who was the founding iceland who founded iceland so right now most evidence is pointing to it being scandinavian men that stopped off in ireland picked up women and then carried on to Iceland and founded Iceland. So I wanted to see if the cranial shape of the founding population shows that. So women would look more like people from the British Isles. Men would look more like people from Scandinavia. And I'm also looking at Anglo-Saxon burials in the United Kingdom to see if we can identify who's actually buried with an Anglo-Saxon burial. Was it only the Saxons that came in that got Anglo-Saxon burial rites, or were Indigenous Britons um, adopting that culture? Well, that will be that is so yeah. cool, and that'll be really interesting from the in the Scandinavian perspective as well, because there's been a lot of debate among Viking scholars about how can you identify a Viking grave because when the Vikings went to the UK, they really did assimilate rather quickly. And the the local population also started picking up some Scandinavian customs that you will occasionally find um, tortoiseshell brooches and things. So if you had a morphological way of saying these skull shapes are more similar to uh, Scandinavians versus the contemporary British population. That would be really interesting. Yeah. Um, hopefully, I've, I've just, I'm collecting the data for it now, and I'll hopefully start analyses in the next few months. And hopefully it works. There's reason there's other studies that have used the same type of methods on different populations and shown that it has a potential to work. And mm-hmm. if so, then I hope, I think it could help um, ancient DNA analyses, because a lot of times, um, People want want to look at relatedness in populations and either don't have money to run all of the ancient DNA analyses that they would want, or um, the collections won't allow them to take destructive sampling. So if you were to use that in conjunction with these methods, which are non-destructive, I don't Mm -hmm. take anything from the bone, um, then that actually might help studies that look at at relatedness between populations in the past that's fascinating and so did you go to um are these collections in iceland and in the uk and so forth or they tend to be um within one collection no they're they're all around so i've been to iceland and denmark and a lot of places throughout britain and i'll be hopefully going to norway in april Oh, that's so cool. It's wonderful mm-hmm. when uh, research can let you travel as well. Oh, yeah, it's been great. For my spine project, I actually, um, I'm 
a paper that is under review right now includes uh, vertebrae from fossil hominins, which are on the same branch as us after we split from chimpanzees, after we split from the last common ancestor with chimpanzees, sorry. So they're cl more closely related to us than we are to chimpanzees. Some of them may be our ancestors. So I've included them in the analyses. And so that allowed me to travel to amazing places like Uganda and South Africa and oh Israel to, to actually look at the fossils. And that was amazing. That was beyond what I could have hoped for when I was seven years old and choosing this line of work. <laughs> I'm in the wrong field. <laughs> <laughs> the wrong field of archaeology is like, I want to go there too. Um, have, even though you said you haven't started the intensive analysis yet, have mm -hmm. you seen anything that has already surprised you when um, gathering your, your research information? Um, no, not yet. I had a a student. Um, her name is Lucy uh, Timbrell. She's actually doing her master's at the University of Cambridge right now. She did her undergraduate dissertation on, I gave her scans of crania from individuals from a, Pictish, a Scottish Pictish cemetery, monastic cemetery, and then a Romano-British um, cemetery in London. Mm -hmm. And uh, so she used my methods, the methods that I use on those two skulls to see if she could identify differences between what should be very closely related populations. They're, they're separated in time and geography, but very, um, not as much as different, you know, Scandinavia to Britain or um, mm -hmm. more widely dispersed populations like that. So my hope was that if when she ran this proof of concept study, we would actually be able to identify statistical differences between the two populations. And she was able to, we put a paper together um, that we've is under review as well. So hopefully that gets put through mm -hmm. and hopefully she's doing a PhD in Liverpool. Hopefully. Soon. <laughs> Keep working together. Yeah. It's always good yeah. to know that your research methodologies are panning out. You know, to have that kind of pilot study. It says, "Hey, this this worked." Yeah, exactly. Like uh, there, there have <laughs> been studies that you've used similar, um, used the methods on and looked at populations from different countries and found that there were seen differences. Um, but I wanted to see if we could use it because if we could use it for even um, closely related populations, that would increase the benefit of the of the methods, even possibly for forensic anthropology, where if we got a big enough data set of different individuals so we had this widespread data set of human variation then perhaps that would help identify um, ethnic background of people who are, are found when they're completely skeletonized mm -hmm. and there's no soft tissue to be able to identify ethnic background mm -hmm. that is so cool is there any i'm out of curiosity chelsea and kim any crossover in both of your research um because it sounds like there's some similar population yeah. you both are looking at so it was actually um, kind of funny. I was in Denmark over the, the summer, as most of our listeners should know, and had been told that, you know, a researcher was coming to, to do some uh, photogrammetry and scanning things. But I was not given a name and I didn't think to ask. I was like, great, another bio person. Um, and then I walk into the lab one morning and there's Kim and I'm like, oh, I haven't seen you in, you know, seven, eight years. Um, but I did my, my master's at Durham when we did her <laughs> PhD. So there was some, some overlap there. Um, it's the last like two weeks of my data collection period. Um, it was great to have a familiar face. Yeah. In bioarchaeology, there's about a degree and a half of separation <laughs> compared to the usual six. <laughs> 
it's an even smaller community than you'd expect in archaeology. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that is so cool. Is there anything you guys think where you'll have crossover where you'll be using each other's research or is there a, enough of a, um, ba- a difference in terms of what you guys are studying? I'm just curious how yeah. that all fits um, together. So I can actually say that I will 100% be using Kim's research. I actually identified some individuals with Schmorl's nodes from the Viking Age in the Danish population, and we'll be referencing Kim's work for the kind of identifying factors for Schmorl's nodes. Uh, Yay! And those individuals are probably included in my um, the paper that's in review because I went to Denmark for that data collection as well. Nice. That is so cool. I love it when you get crossover like that. It's like, I can use this, you can use this, and it's all helping each other. Hooray. <laughs> yeah. Collaboration. And I also talked a little bit while I was in Denmark about um, the photogrammetry software that she is currently using for her study. I am very interested in some of its applications as well as the the speed with which it's been adopted, I guess, by the archaeological community mm-hmm. versus the amount of testing that has gone into identifying the amount of error based on different programs, what different cameras are using, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So I may be hitting her up for some uh, assistance for a postdoc of my own. <laughs> oh, interesting. That is so cool. And yeah, photogrammetry, it's its amazing. And I, I honestly had not thought about it terms of using it with skeletal remains because I've primarily seen it used with um, artifacts and that's probably because the work I do in the United States you can't have (laughs) images of human remains so it's it's amazing you guys can create these really unique scans of these individuals and so when you're looking on them on the computer are you able to do like the full 3d turnaround and as it, like, is it almost as good as being able to handle the remains themselves? So I think that's a big question, and we are at the end of 20 minutes, so maybe we jump on that <laughs> uh, in our next section. Okay. Excellent. All right. Perfect. See you after the break. During this break, why not check out the Women in Archaeology blog and see the types of posts we've been putting up over the last two years. We have been discussing many different types of topics from surveys that have been done in the field on what archaeologists are experiencing, all the way to subjects that interest us at this time. You can also see the backlog of episodes, and it's also a way you can contact us about your interest in the episode and any topics you would like us to cover sometime. Again, thanks for listening. Hi, and welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. On today's episode, we're joined by Dr. Kimberly Plomp. We've been talking about some of her work with Schmoll's nodes, as well as photogrammetry and kinship studies based on cranial measurements. And kind of at the end of the last section, Emily, you had a question, if you want to just rephrase that for us real quickly. Sure. Um, I was curious with um, with the work of using photogrammetry and creating these beautiful scans and whatnot using all these photographs and you're getting this 3D image. Um, are they almost as good as being able to have the actual um, individual in front of you? So like if you had to study it again later or you forgot to get some measurements, is it are these images you're getting almost as good as being there? So... Photogrammetry, when I complete a, a skull, I can 
put a mesh on top of it that makes it look exactly like the skull. So any kind of discoloration or, you know, a tooth cavity, um, any kind of pathology, I can see on that image. So in terms of that, yes. Um, as well for measurements, it, although Chelsea's correct that we haven't completely tested the accuracy and error um, of that, we sh would be able to use them just as well as the uh, crania in real life. What would come into question would be, um, for my methods, if I were using the, these shape methods that look at very subtle differences, and if I were looking at um, taking landmarks on the actual skulls, and then taking landmarks on the scans and putting them together, that might cause error. And actually, I have a paper in prep that's going to uh, discuss that. Mm -hmm. But if I were to look at only all the skulls, the error should um, uh, be small enough that what I'm picking up in terms of different populations, different sexes, different that is going to be a larger amount of variation than what the error would be caused okay. by... Um, having this uh, scan as opposed to the real one. My colleagues have tested the difference between using photogrammetry and using laser scanners. Okay. And they found that they're comparable. So you can take images from photo that you've gotten from photogrammetry and you can take into, um, images that you've gotten from using laser scanners and you can put those together in data set. And that was... Um, published in the Journal of Archaeological Science, if anybody wants to go look that up. Okay. <clears throat> One thing that I really like about using the photogrammetry, especially with something like um, cranial heads of archaeological collections, is that it's not only is it non-destructive, but it actually creates um, a digital archive of the, the bone. So if something were to unfortunately happen to the bone, someone were to drop it or to break, we would then have a high quality three-dimensional image of that mm -hmm. skull. Another thing too is that um, as we, bioarchaeology has seen this large increase in students and professionals in the field, which is great, but it means that there's more students going to these collections for their studies, for their research, more postdocs are using them, more um, everybody is coming to use these. And so they're being handled more and more and so if we can kind of cut back on that and if someone can use digital copies instead of going to the actual collections and handling them it actually might cut back on this direct one-on-one -on -one contact with the remains which are obviously invaluable and irreplaceable mm -hmm. it also could allow for uh, researchers from different countries who may not have the funds to be able to travel to somewhere like Denmark for a few weeks and do data collection so once I'm done my project, I'm going to make all of my scans open access. That's going to be up to a lot of it to the museum. So there's some museums that won't want it to be open access. So what mm -hmm. I'll do is I'll, I'll give them the scans of the collections that they house and then people can come to them to ask and they can use their discretion whether they release them or not. Mm -hmm. And there's going to, and there's some museums who, who are fine with me just releasing it. So um, once I'm finished, they're just going to be open access. And so researchers will be able to use them uh, for as long as this technology is available mm -hmm. um, and used. Yeah. So, so I think that's a really helpful thing for archaeology in particular. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think some really good points in it. The digital archive and the accessibility of the scans is really important. Um, and there are some cases in which 
the 3D reconstruction is uh, good enough, you know, and you get the information off of it. There will be some other situations. I do some work with um, enthesial changes, right, which is where muscle attachments, uh, an emphasis is a muscle attachment on your bone. And for looking at that, it's kind of done on a, a grade or a scale as to how, um, you know, intense or robust the, the changes are that you're seeing. And for some of the higher ends of that scale, you will be able to see them from a scan. But some of the smaller numbers are not just a visual assessment. It is also a kind of textural assessment. So it is important to have the actual bones in front of you um, because if you can't feel it, um, if it's on a screen, you know, you might not be able to pick up on it. And then as well, if you do end up printing them, the texture of whatever material you use to print the bone may also impact your ability to identify those features. Yeah, exactly. There might be a point in time where the, I mean, the technology has advanced so much in the last few years that there might be a point that we reach uh, a stage where that can be done. But yeah, I agree with you right now. Um, looking at those type of features or, you know, a minor infection on the bones that leaves just a little bit of evidence on the bone might not be easily recordable on on scans. Yeah, and I think, um, go back to what, you know, what I was talking earlier about kind of the managing the error bars or identifying the error bars. One of the reasons that I think it's really important to kind of get that baseline level of understanding of what the errors are, what causes yes. them, you know, different, um, different cameras, different uh, resolutions, that sort of thing. If we have that information and it's really like solidly established, it does make it easier for the technology to advance and for us to figure out what these scans can be used for and what they are not so useful for. Yes, I agree. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll see where it heads out because I feel like more and more people are being interested in photogrammetry because it is relatively inexpensive compared to 3D scanners and it doesn't require a power source. And there are many, many good things about it. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. And I think it's really cool when, I mean, I've seen it when uh, museums are trying to create virtual museums for the public. And I just, I think it's such a unique tool. Like if you can't, at least, if you can't go see something, at least you're getting something much better than just a photo. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. The University of Bradford is, has a cool program called Digitizing Diseases, where they're, they're making scans of a lot of their um, pathological examples in their collections. Cool. I didn't realize so, they were doing that. Yeah, so something like that um, would, is good for teaching as well, if you could get access to them and use them for teaching, because there's a lot of times, you know, doing a bioarchaeology course in the UK, we're quite lucky to have collections that have a lot of these leprosy, tuberculosis, um, all these different pathologies, all but in Canada, <laughs> we don't have that. We don't really have access to skeletons like that. So you may not be able to see actual examples. You might just be limited to what you read in books and articles. So bring, being able to bring up a three-dimensional scan might give the students a better idea of how these things affect the bone. That sounds like a really cool cool project and endeavor. And it makes me want to go check out their website, see what they already have up. Yeah, it is cool. And uh, speaking of research and articles and books and whatnot we would love to hear about the book you're editing 
Oh, yeah. So I'm quite excited about it. I am co-editing a volume with uh, Charlotte Roberts, Jillian Bentley, and Sarah Elton. All three of them are at Durham University. Mm -hmm. Uh, Charlotte Roberts is in archaeology, and Sarah and Jillian are both evolutionary anthropologists. The book is kind of exactly how I want my research to go. So I like bioarchaeology and disease in the past, but I would like to use my research to answer questions about things that bother us today. So that would be my interest in the back pain. So the book is called Evolving Health, Paleopathology and Evolutionary Medicine. And there's about 17 chapters from different authors in fields. Um, each chapter is authored by people in archaeology, paleopathology, and then also somebody in biological sciences, health sciences, evolutionary anthropology. So we're gonna each chapter is going to have more than one viewpoint. Mm-hmm. And they're going to discuss health issues and how paleopathology can actually help provide information and insight into conditions <clears throat> uh, that are relevant for evolutionary medicine today. And evolutionary medicine is becoming more and more recognized as an important port- part of medicine and medical training. So I think that combining the two and being able to say this is how using paleopathology um, the information in paleopathology to help provide answers to questions of evolutionary anthropology and medical problems today, and then also taking evolutionary theory, evolutionary medicine, and applying that to questions that we're using in paleoanthropology, or sorry, paleopathology and our research in paleopathology, how combining the two can actually strengthen um, the research that's being undertaken. That sounds really cool. Yeah, hopefully. The proposal has just been accepted with Oxford University Press, um, so it'll probably be about a year and a half before it's out, but I'm pretty excited yeah. to get it started. Well, congratulations on that. That's um, a big achievement to you know, have a, an edited um, volume accepted. And are the chapters from scholars all over the world or primarily in the UK? Uh, no, there's um, authors from all over the world. So when we approached authors, we looked at their research and topics, and then a lot of times... We even put authors together that didn't know each other beforehand, which is pretty cool. I think it's really mm-hmm. cool that they've agreed to do that. Mm-hmm. So um, they're actually working with new people on a project. So, you know, someone who looks at um, cancer in medical um, medical research and then someone looking at it in bioarchaeology, they're coming together with their different viewpoints, different backgrounds, different experiences, and they're going to write a chapter on um, using the bioarchaeology of, of cancer and, and evolutionary theory to tell us what we know about it now and how we can use that information in uh, modern evolutionary medicine. Nice. Seems like such a Charlotte Roberts project, right? Because she started out um, in the medical field, didn't she? Yeah, she was a, um, a registered nurse. Yeah. That's why when I when I came up with this idea for this book, I went directly to her because I knew that she would be not only incredibly supportive, which she has been, um, but that she would like this idea and I thought it would fit her portfolio portfolio quite well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, I'm definitely looking forward to reading it. It's a great idea. I hope the uh, the women in archaeology group can uh, potentially do a book review, maybe. Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. I mean, all all four editors are female, so excellent, excellent. Yeah, that's super exciting. Well, it looks like we've got about five minutes left. The last portion of today's show. I don't know if there's anything else that you want to touch on, Kim, or hmm, that's hard to say. I guess. Since this podcast is aimed towards women in archaeology, hopefully males are listening as well. 
But I would just say that if you are a female um, in archaeology and you're, you feel uncomfortable or inadequate or something like that, just to reach out to somebody else in the field, even even if you don't know them, send an email, talk to them, um, supporting each other in what has historically been a male-dominated field is quite important. And I think podcasts like this and, and movements like this can quite help, especially with it being a field-based um, a field-based discipline, there are, are unfortunately can be issues with um, sexual harassment, sexual abuse comes up as we saw a couple of years ago um, with all, all the stuff that came to light. I won't name names, but I'm sure everybody's heard about well, it. We have some, so, we have some episodes that discuss that and might name some names. So good. Yeah, I mean, names <laughs> should be named, but they... Um, you don't need to do the name. Oh, I guess I, what I'd want to say is that that's, it's an important to keep that conversation going and for women in the field, whether you're you know established in the field or new to the field, to find people, other women, that can help support you and fight for you. And um, you're not alone and you don't have to put up with it. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point to, to make. Um, we do have some resources mm-hmm. for that, and as always, people can uh, email us at womeninarchaeology at gmail.com, or we're on Twitter, and we have a, a blog, and we're happy to support people where we can. You know, it's kind of the, the point of this podcast was to increase female representation and um, provide a, a space for female archaeologists to have conversations. And, mm-hmm. Exactly. And, and most people in the field are supportive, wonderful, enthusiastic, lovely people. Yes. And we don't mind being bothered. And just like, pardon? Well, and as I say, none of us t- usually mind being bothered via email. Or... We love hearing from people no, via email, it. to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> and help build, you know, those connections in the community that is so important to, to archaeology. Yes, exactly. And there's a lot of things that you you know, as a student or someone just coming into the field that you're not necessarily taught. And we've all learned by trial and error, kind of blindly walking through it. And sometimes you're lucky enough to have a supervisor who will explain it to you. But quite often, we you don't have much. So always just reach out and ask somebody because most people are more than happy to share their experience that will help you. Um, so you're not quite so much in the dark as we were. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. That is a... Very good point. Um, on hopefully some of our, our podcast episodes, even if you don't necessarily want to ask a question of someone, um, maybe we provide the answers without having yes. That's the fun thing too about this this podcast too is that um, I mean Kim, I have I have never met you, but now I've virtually met you, and I have <laughs> never met Chelsea in person. But although we have talked a lot, and so I think um, the more and more outreach we can do and talk to folks, hopefully. Not only are they going to learn some stuff about like bioarchaeology, but hopefully they'll be like, yeah, this the community's pretty friendly. Yeah, and for sure. Yeah, we're there for I am really looking forward to um, the the SAAs that are coming up in in oh, April yes. because I will finally get to meet you in person. <laughs> <laughs> and Kim, hopefully, if you're ever in, back in the states, hopefully I'll get to meet you too. Because that would be yes, yeah, sounds great. I'm usually I usually go to conferences. This year I'm sitting most out though because. I don't have my new data yet, yeah. but next year I'll be hitting them all. Kim's amazing, fun. though, definitely. Well, I think it's amazing you guys put this together. <laughs> Thank you. It's fun. Come find us at the Society for American Archaeology. We'll be running around with pins and stickers yes. and whatnot. Definitely. Probably do a, uh, a live recording as well. 
with all of us sitting in one room, which will be, That'd be great. novel. <laughs> yeah. Exciting. Well, that just about brings us to um, the end of the episode. So, Kim, thank you so much for coming on today. It was absolutely fascinating getting to talk to you. Yeah. Thanks for having me. And good luck with all of your research and analysis and congratulations on your um, on your grants and fellowships and whatnot. It's wonderful, all the stuff you're doing. Oh, thanks. Yeah, thank definitely. you guys, too. All right. Um, so thank you so much for being on here. Um, please subscribe to the Wounded Archaeology RSS feed. And we'll see you next time. Bye. 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 Bye.